Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. Here we are with Tim Delaney. He's an entrepreneur. He's done lots of cool things. Like one of the things we're going to talk about is how he turned a $35,000 investment into a million dollar asset, among other things. So he's a real estate investor. He's an entrepreneur. He purchases businesses. So we have lots of things to talk about. Tim, we'd love to kick it off with a story, man. Could you tell us about your craziest real estate experience? Thanks for having me, guys. Really excited to be here. Um, one of the something that happened recently, and I, and I actually got one upped on Instagram when I shared this. But uh, we were doing work on a, a, a two two different units that share a wall together back to back. Our plumber wanted to open up both sides at the same time, just for speed and efficiency. At the end of the day, he decided to leave the uh, the walls open on both sides, and these are both habited apartments. So there are tenants in both of them. Our agreement with the tenants with the work going on was that they would have a functioning toilet at the end of every day during the week that we were working. Uh, One of the tenants got home from work and walked in their house to find their neighbor's cat staring at them in their face. They were a little bit shocked as to how their neighbor's cat got in their apartment until they went upstairs and saw that they could just reach in and flush their neighbor's toilet uh, because there was a big giant hole in it. So they would have been sitting back to back on their toilets uh, with no wall in between them. Uh, we had to obviously repair that and uh, get some temporary drywall up there for the night to make them both happy. <laughs> totally. Holy smokes. Yeah. Were they freaking out about it or they were just pretty chill? The one side was pretty, pretty freaked out about it. They were not, they were not happy. And it wasn't like massive hole. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of lumber in there. It's not like a person would have been easily. Some plumbing, et cetera. And forth, but. Uh, but the cat had no problem, uh, and the, there was obviously no privacy for, for either of them in their bathroom. So, not a great situation. That's wild, dude. It's so interesting, like dealing with contractors and seeing sometimes their their ideas and their solutions. And like, did that like did you filter that through your brain? You know, or did, you just, did that just go out unedited? You know. Yep. Yeah. It's you know obviously we we've made my and my partner is a general contractor, and so he's been trying to make more and more detailed lists for all of our subs that come in to do work. Cause it, it's just, it's like, what do I, I really, I have to tell you to do that at the end of the day, I have to tell you to, you know, pick up your tool and put it back in your tool belt and take it home with you. It just, yeah, it's, it's wild, but, but for the most part, everything goes smoothly. It's just always, a, they make for good stories. Totally. So take us, through your journey a little bit. I know you're you're a very traveled man and you've had a lot of cool life experiences. So take us in, in our audience through your journey of, you know, when you're a little bit younger in life and, and what's leading you to now. Sure. Uh, so I, uh, born and raised in, just outside of Buffalo, New York. I uh, love my hometown as anybody that's ever met me anywhere in the world uh, can usually figure out where I'm from pretty quickly. Uh, it's kind of a running joke. But uh I went to school in Boston, I planned on going to Wall Street. I wanted to be a stockbroker, loved business, grew up around family businesses. Uh, just knew that I always would have business in my future. During college, I moved to Ireland for a semester. Really loved the international kind of vibe and experience, uh, living in different cultures. So at the end of college, instead of going and looking for that job on Wall Street, I decided to join the Peace Corps. 
which uh, for those that aren't aware is a two-year volunteering commitment with the U.S. government. They kind of place you somewhere overseas, uh, usually in a developing country, and you do something that fits your skill set to help the local community. Uh, I told them I would pretty much go anywhere in the world. I just did not want to be a school teacher. Uh, so they sent me to a country called Guyana, which is in South America, and they put me in a school to be a school teacher. So I had to learn how to uh, adapt and do that. It's not my, not my favorite, but made, it, made, it, uh, made the best of it I could. Okay, cool. Let me pause you for a second. You mentioned it was not your favorite. What did you not like about it, and, and how did you grow from that? Good, good question. Um, I am not a super patient person, as uh, anybody in my life will tell you. So teaching in a school setting like that is, uh, you know, where students don't want to be there. It's, you know, it, it was a, a junior high into high school situation. So it's, you know, not the most motivated group of individuals necessarily. And uh, it just, you know, so my patience level with that is not good. I guess what it taught me was to try to be a little bit more patient um, and to kind of take take what life gives you and make the best of it. You know, so outside of school, I did a lot of um, activities with a, some of the youth organizations in the in the town with an environmental club. I would talk to small business owners whenever I could and offer them my assistance and my knowledge and experience uh, to that point. So they could do with it what they could. So really, I guess, learning to be a little bit more patient and, and kind of taking what you get and making the best of it. That's awesome. Like I could totally relate. I was a high school math teacher for a couple of years, so I can relate to the struggles that you have. You seem to have this sense of always knowing from a young age that you want to be in business. Like that's not always what we hear. Like what was so concrete for you? Like why was it so easy to know, like, this is the path I want to go on? probably had to do with growing up. My, my parents owned a pizzeria and they sold that. My father started another business that actually didn't do so great um, and kind of failed. Uh, but then he started another one or he partnered with somebody to start another one. And that one did okay. Uh, so I guess just seeing the freedom that my parents had and we had as a family, um, you know, it was a little, a little different growing up in a small business family than than a traditional nine to five work environment uh, with parents. So that was probably what really drove it. That's probably what drove me away from wanting to go work on Wall Street as well. That, you know, at the end of college, <laughs> realizing that 80 hour work weeks were not something that I necessarily wanted to do for somebody else. Um, yeah, so after Peace Corps, I, I took a job in Ethiopia um, with a nonprofit organization. And then I transitioned into a, a wouldn't call it a for-profit, but it wasn't a non-profit. It was kind of a German, it's a German governmental sort of organization that was working with the Ethiopian government on industrializing the entire country. So we were taking a post-World War II German model of uh, basically improving the university systems, the technical education systems, and the private sector uh, to create more value add in the country so that Ethiopia's GDP while I was living there 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, uh, their GDP was going up double digits while the rest of the global economy was kind of falling off a cliff, uh, which was kind of fun to be a part of and, and be involved with, even though I only had a very small part in that. Uh, it was just still to be 
so fun to be a part of it. Um, Absolutely. And where do we go from there? From and obviously, there, I, I'm sensing a bit yeah. of humility there. You're like, I had a very small part to do with that. It sounds like I, yeah. you might have I stimulated was, a bit of it. A very, very small cog in the wheel. Let's, before, we, okay. before we go on to the next part, like I want to dive yep. into this because yep. we're potentially facing a big recession, crash, et cetera. There's a lot of people saying it's going to be the worst thing ever. Some people are saying it's not going to be that big of a deal. But can you maybe describe, given that you were on the ground there, what yep. what was your con like not your contribution but what was your sense of like why was that country taking off while other parts of the world were failing? Um, they weren't linked to the global financial system at the time, so I guess they you know they they kind of skated by unscathed. I, I kind of equate it to I wasn't involved in the Buffalo real estate market back then, but I remember talking to people at home and hearing about the housing prices falling everywhere in the US, people in Buffalo generally said they weren't falling that bad here because it, they weren't part of that massive investor network. It was kind of off the radar back then. I know in the past decade, it's Buffalo's drawn attention as a cash flow market, but it wasn't as big back then. And so, they, so I think Ethiopia kind of did the same thing. They weren't part of that financial market. So they weren't you know, they weren't affected by the collapse of the banking system. And then they were, they were just making more products. They were, you know, so whereas they used to export raw leather, they were now making shoes and belts and jackets and gloves in the country. And so the, the exponential value that they were getting and bringing back into the country was significant. So it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't anything it wasn't any one little thing that they were doing differently. It was just a matter of they were coming and they were, you know, when you're coming from much lower spot, it's a little bit easier to percentage wise look, look much better. Okay. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. So cool. Take us continuous on your journey. Wife and I decided we wanted to be closer to family. Uh, we moved back to Buffalo in late 2010. Uh, I convinced my employer to keep me on for a little bit. Actually, it didn't take much convincing. I told them I was moving and they asked if I would keep working for them for a while from Buffalo. So had a, a consulting job with them from Buffalo while I got uh, kind of got my feet on the ground here and decided what I wanted to do. I started, I tried to start a little importing business from Ethiopia, some leather goods of my own. Um, didn't really take off as fast as I'd like. But in that process, I uh, met somebody that offered me a business for sale. And I, at first, wasn't too interested. I figured if somebody's selling their business, it can't be that good of a deal. You know, what, you know, obviously it's not making money. Uh, mm -hmm. But I took a look at it. I ran the numbers. I looked at the, the banks and the lenders willing to give me money. And I was like, huh, this, is, this actually makes some sense. Uh, I can use a very low down payment. I can get a bunch of leverage on it at good rates and good terms, and I can get a paycheck for myself day one. I don't have to worry about taking my savings and dumping it into an investment into a, in a startup business that may or may not pan out. And in the meantime, I can't pay myself. So that particular business didn't work out, but it's led me down the path to start actively looking for businesses to buy. Um, and that's where, okay. uh, yeah, I, I, so at that point, I, you know, I probably analyzed a couple dozen businesses over the next year or two. I shifted into consulting local businesses. So I started throwing ads up on Craigslist that I could help with social media and, uh, kind of teach small business owners, particularly 
people getting, you know, I didn't put this in the ads, but I was hoping to target people that were kind of adverse to social media that, you know, people in their 50s, 60s that didn't know what to do. And this is, you know, in the early days of Facebook being starting to become uh, important for businesses. So I did that with the intention of hoping to finding, you know, hoping, uh, hoping to find a business owner that was just ready to move on and, uh, and sell. Uh, that method also didn't work out, but I did eventually find the right business for myself. It's interesting that you say that because I know in my journey, a lot of the things that I do, like they definitely don't play out the way that I have them in my mind. And it's like, I'm going to go buy properties at a discount. I'm going to do it this way. And then it's like, well, it usually comes in through another way. Like most of the best deals I've, I've bought in my career just came to me because of this roundabout way. So can you describe like, how did you end up finding the business that that you bought. Yeah. So I was working with multiple brokers um, and business brokers operate a little bit differently than real estate brokers for those that aren't aware. Um, you know, where when you get a house listed, the, the agent or the brokerage kind of spreads it out to everybody. They want everybody in the world to know that they're selling this house. So brokers and agents from other, you know, from other agencies can come in and potentially buy that house with business brokers if they get the listing, they don't share that with other business brokers. Uh, it's just, it's theirs and they network it. You know, they, they put it out to people that they've met and vetted. So you have, you can't just rely on one business broker. So I was networking with a lot of different people. Um, I was also having lunches and coffees with accountants and lawyers, just kind of putting it out there that I was looking for a business, you know, not too expensive. Um, I wanted some upside, I preferably something that was didn't have a website, that didn't have social media, that I knew that I, I could grow a little bit with some better marketing and potentially a product that uh, could be sold online that they hadn't taken to e-commerce yet. Uh, and that's, uh, yeah, so eventually a broker brought uh, a liquor store to me. Actually, they, they brought a few liquor stores to me that I kind of categorically turned down at first. Uh, mostly because I was nervous about the e-commerce potential. Uh, it's wine and liquor, uh, heavy items and glass. So fragile and heavy to ship. But when they sent me this particular store that, you know, that day that I had the time to actually look at the numbers and where it was, I knew the town, I knew that the town was changing and more and more people were moving out there. I knew that, uh, you know, and it was an old, you know, kind of, a run in an old fashioned way. There was no point of sale system. They used an old fashioned cash register. They didn't have an accurate inventory list at any given time. So I knew that it was kind of the right opportunity to buy and grow. How cool. Well, and I, I love how you had like a specific vision of what you wanted. Okay. I know I need to value add. I could take to e-commerce, so on and so forth. Were those just things that you learned through study or through helping in these different places you traveled? How did you get so clear on what it was that you wanted? It's, it's funny that it sounds so clear because at the time I didn't feel clear at all on what I wanted. Uh, I, I guess because I was a little industry agnostic, uh, I was willing to kind of take anything didn't matter on in the industry, but, but I, I guess I, I just knew that those were my strengths at the time. I knew that I knew Facebook better than the average person at the time. I knew that I had the resources to build a website, uh, that, I could get, you know, a decent e-commerce website up fairly quick, quickly and inexpensively. Um, 
so that's that's where the clarity on that on those pieces came from just building to my strengths um cool and then where do we go from here uh so you know i guess in terms of like buying the business which is where you know i want to share with your audience i know it's mostly you know a lot of people here are real estate focused and that's what you guys talk about a lot too and i'm all for real estate i've been getting heavily into real estate but for the person that is uh kind of sitting in a w-2 job or doesn't really know what they want to do or doesn't like what they're doing and has a small nest egg uh, it doesn't take a ton to get into a small business, especially right now with the amount of baby boomers that are retiring and moving on. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've seen people just close the doors on their successfully run businesses for 20, 30 years, just because they don't, they might not even be aware that they can sell it. Um, and so getting into those deals, finding those deals where you, they might be willing to carry a note for a hundred percent of the business, uh, as long as you pay them off in a certain amount of time, it's tax beneficial to them. But if not the small business administration, the SBA has great programs uh, where they, they kind of financially back banks that are willing to take a chance and give somebody a loan to buy a business so that it, uh, it's beneficial for everybody. Um, the bank is taking a risk on the loan, but if they're looking at the financials of a, a business that's been around for 10, 15, 30 years, uh, they're going to say, well, that's a pretty good bet. Plus the government's going to back up 70% of whatever we're going to lend to this guy. And so if it does go bad, we're still going to get a lot of our money back. Uh, it's, you know, it's a, there's really good opportunities out there to, uh, to buy a business from that, that regard. Um, but then, you know, what I did was grow the business. I, I took it, you know, I didn't just jump in and uh, I didn't just walk in the door and say, all right, everything's good. Let's just keep running it like it is. Uh, day one, I had myself and two part-time employees. Uh, we were open 72 hours a week. So that meant I was there 40 plus hours by myself. And I had a couple employees closing a few nights a week and working Saturdays. Uh, I've now got I now have three full-time employees and four part-time employees. Uh, so we've grown the sales, we've grown the, the processes, put a point of sale system in day one so we could tr accurately track our inventory, make good buying decisions, make good business decisions. We do have that e-commerce website, even though selling wine online is a little bit of a challenge still. Uh, we're only allowed to sell to 14 states, so it's, it's limited, but we do it. Uh, we make the best of what we got. Um, and so I've, I've took me nine years to grow the business to, you know, where I'm come for seven years, it's been nine years since I owned it. Uh, so it's not an overnight, you know, get rich quick scheme by any means, but in under a decade, I took that my initial down payment of $35,000. And if I was going to sell the business today, it's probably, you know, it's tough to give an exact amount of a, of a independent business, but I would value it roughly around a million dollars, including the inventory. So $35,000 to a million dollar asset in under a decade, I'd, I'd say that's a pretty, pretty good return for anybody out there. On top, let's, let, let's dive into this a bit in the financials. And I'm so glad you went there. Like I always feel a little bit awkward, like, Hey, do I ask him how much money he's making? But since you threw it out there, we can give this as a, as a case study for our audience. So I'm assuming it's not just the equity growth, right? I mean, you see, so you, you have a million dollar asset, give or take, 
but but you're pulling out money along the way. Like how much money have you made over the 10 years in income? Um, so it's, you know, I paid myself a salary day one, you know, the first year, I think I was paying myself, I think I started at $500 a month for the first couple of months, just to be sure I had the cash coming in. And then I bumped it up to $500 a week for a while, and then slowly bumped it up to $1,000 a week. So a modest store salary, you know, store manager salary for a retail environment. Um, in addition to that, yeah. Because you're yeah. talking about, like, I know so many people in my local area that they have $35,000 yep. and they're working their tails off at their current job. And if they did the strategy like this, where they bought something and could have enough for a down payment on a business and it could have enough maybe to sustain themselves for a year, it sounds like yep. they get some income, but by year two, maybe they're making $48,000 a year. That might match what they're making at their other job. And if they just stick with that for 10 years, they might be sitting on something that's worth a million plus. Like that's exactly. a, yeah, love yeah. that. Yep. I mean, they, they, you know, again, at the beginning, you're going to be working a lot. You're going to, you have to put in that, that effort. I'm, I don't like to sugarcoat it at all. It's not like you're, you know, it's not like buying certain assets, you know, passively investing in a real estate syndication where you're not, you don't have to do a thing, um, lift a finger to do it. So you're going to be putting in that work and you're going to be, you might be kicking yourself that first year when you're not making what you were making and you're working way more or just as much. Uh, it might not seem great at the time, but once you get over that hump and, and start uh, seeing some growth and start and paying down that debt, because uh, it's usually on a shorter amortization period as well than real estate. So you're, you know, seven to 10 year notes so that you start seeing that debt drop quite substantially, pretty quickly. Uh, it's, it's nice to, um, you know, look at that, that loan statement every month, every quarter, and it's just dropping, dropping, dropping. And that's where you're, you know, you, I'm sure you talk about it in real estate with the debt pay down as being a key piece of the, of the asset of the, of the investment. So yes, anybody, you know, that's, that's what I try to tell people is take your, take all that effort and the work that you're putting in, especially for those in big corporations where, it might seem like a secure job, but you never know. Uh, it change, things change. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between five and 20 people every single week we have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us and let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. Love this. 
So you have the vantage point, and this is going to kind of segue us into the real estate conversation. You have the benefit of doing both. Yep. And so someone starting out, do you think it's better to start out in business or better to start out in real estate? Good question. I think there are more opportunities to get into a business with less down than there are in real estate. Uh, I've talked to other people that have purchased businesses that have gotten into things for zero down, uh, literally nothing out of pocket. Uh, you know, between so a, a kind of a cool thing with SBA loans is that a lot of the banks will look at a seller note as the buyer's equity. So if they want to see you have, you know, so if I'm, let's say I'm going to buy a business for, for a hundred thousand dollars, I go to the bank and say, I want a loan for 70,000. They say, okay, we'll do, we'll do 70% uh, or we'll give you a loan up to 70% of the asset, but you got to bring 30% equity. I can turn around and go to the seller of the business and say, Hey, uh, would you hold a note for $30,000 for this, this rate, this terms? And as long as the combination of those two loans, you can still cash flow, you can still pay yourself, and you can still cash flow a little bit. The bank is like, okay, that thirty that thirty grand counts as your equity, even though it's a loan. It, I haven't seen that yet in real estate. I know we, you know, I know we, people can use bridge notes and, and kind of finagle that and do the same thing. But the banks, generally in a traditional sense, don't love it when somebody comes in with nothing. Yeah. Yeah, that that's definitely true. Um, so cool. Like, so when you are looking for a business, like, what kind of things are you looking at? Like, how do you underwrite a business? Like, I can understand real estate, obviously. Like, what is the differences there when you're looking at financial statements and P and Ls and things of that nature? Uh, so it's going to vary a little bit for every business. Um, and I do actually have a, uh, a spreadsheet that I'm willing to share with your audience too. Uh, it's on my website. We can put that link up later. But the essentially. What you're looking for is revenue, uh, the uh, cost of goods. You're going to subtract that to get your gross margin, your gross profit, and then look at all the other expenses that are coming out. Um, with family-run businesses, you have to be careful. That you'll you'll talk to business owners that say, "Okay, yeah, my books show that I'm making a million dollars a year in revenue, but..." Really, wink, wink, nod, nod. It's it's one point five. I just don't like to let the government know how much I'm making. Or they'll look at the expense column and say, "Oh yeah, you these are here on the expense column, but in reality, you don't really need this expense and this expense and this expense. That was just to, to buy Timmy a, a car, and that was to buy, uh, you know, Tina a new drum set, and that was to send Bobby to college and." We just found a way to put it on our books to make our profit look less. And that may be true. It may not be true. I tend to try to stick to the numbers as they're presented to me. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah I was going to ask you that question. I'm like, yep. cause it ha same happens in real estate, but it happens way more in business. True. It's like, yeah, buyers, they, 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 there's a phrase in real estate. Buyers are liars and sellers are too. And so dive deeper into that. Like, yep. You know, like, so, I mean, sometimes it's real, so, yeah. you know. It, it, yeah, and it very well may be, um, you know, so on the revenue side, you know, I've talked to business owners that are like, yeah, you know, so this guy, this customer over here, he pays me in cash every week and that's great. And so that you don't have to declare that. 
And the, my, the, in my mind, I said, that's great. A, I don't know if your buddy is going to want to even continue paying me cash or is he going to continue to be a customer uh, because that's your friend. You've got a different relationship with him than purely client uh, driven. And B, the way I, my mind is if, if you've been, basically you've, you've been cutting yourself a break in taxes for all these years. Uh, now you're going to pay it. Now you're going to pay for it uh, by getting a little bit less in the valuation of the business. So it's not like you're actually going back and paying all those taxes. You're just got to, you know, that's a sacrifice you make. So for whatever it's been five, 10, 15 years, you've been keeping a little bit extra money in your pocket because you've been paying a little bit less in taxes. It's going to come back to bite you a little bit now on the valuation of your business. Uh, it, you know, it also indicates to me sometimes, and it, the, the, uh, the scale of it depends on the person you're talking to, but it also indicates to me that if you're willing to, to, you're willing to cheat and you're willing to steal. So what else are you willing to cheat and steal in this deal? Um, you know, like you said, it, it, it happens everywhere. You can, you can forgive a little bit of it, but the numbers are the numbers. If that's on your tax returns, that's, that's what we're going to go with on the valuation. If you can prove to me otherwise why I'm wrong, you know, or on the flip side, you know, for those people out there that already own businesses that are thinking about selling, clean up your books now, clean them up for, for two to three years so that when you present those financials, you get the maximum value. Um, that's something that I went into this, to this business with is I don't plan on selling it, but I run it as though I can sell it any day I want and I'll get the best value I can. Uh, and that's, that's the way everybody should be running things. And just important lesson to remember when you get into the business, you know, when you do actually pull the trigger and buy it, uh, just, you know, keep things, keep things clean, keep things running the way that they should be so that if you ever do need to sell it, or if you need to go get some, some leverage against it. That the bank says, yeah, this looks this looks good. This looks legit. We'll give you a line of credit for X amount, uh, and then what you do with that line of credit is up to you. Absolutely perfect. This makes a lot of sense. Um, so obviously, people should be reporting all of their income. What other mistakes do you see other business owners make um, that you're catching as a red flag? I would love to know that. Um, depending on the industry, you know, there's, there's businesses where they rely almost entirely on one customer for all of the revenue, uh, the, the black widow as some business experts call it. It's something to be nervous of going into buying a business, uh, just to make sure that that relationship with the customer is not purely based on friendship and loyalty to the previous owner. Um, and one of the ways you, you hedge against that is by having the owner hold a note. So if you, if you get them to hold the whole note, then you, you're kind of trusting that, well, they, they believe in, you know, they believe that this is going to continue to run the way it has been running because otherwise they're going to lose out as well. And they're, they have a vested interest in keeping that customer. So that's, that's a big red flag is having one or, you know, having a, having one customer dominate a big portion of the revenue. Love that. I actually wrote that down um, because there are some businesses that we do that are sometimes a little bit more heavy on less customers than on other businesses. And so one thing I want to do, and I think it goes along with Tim's underwriting question for you personally, like I've defined in my real estate process, how much equity I need in a deal if I'm buying it for equity's sake, how much cash flow I need if I'm buying it for cash flow's sake. What does that look like for you? 
Like how, how, what's your trigger points? Like I'll buy a business if it has, if it's 200,000 below its actual value, I'll buy a business if it's got X amount of cash flow. How do you think through that? Um, combination. I mean, so on the equity piece, I am trying to buy with as little going into the deal as possible. Um, as I mentioned, there's ways to try to try to get between a combination of bank loans and seller loans. So there may not on paper be equity in it day one, but I see the potential to increase that equity, um, you know, 10, 20% in the first, first year or two uh, between growing the business and then paying down the debt uh, quite rapidly. Um, so that that's what I would be looking for on the equity side. And then cash flow side, uh, you know, minimum cash on cash return of about 20% in a business, just because there is that higher risk than real estate. Uh, but again, if I can get into the business for nothing, then the infinite cash flow is, is also uh, a great, great return. Yeah. And, and forgive my ignorance here. So when you get an SBA loan, the SBA loan is, is it connected to you personally, or is it solely in the entity? Um, they do usually require a personal guarantee on it. Uh, so it is something, you know, it, there is that risk, uh, associated with it. You know, it's not like you can just run away scot-free if the business fails in the first year or two. Um, but it's, you know, you're, you're getting the loan through a bank and then they're getting the backing of the SBA on it. So it's the bank is underwriting the business and the deal as well. You know, they, even though the government is going to back up their loan, they don't like giving bad loans because it's, you know, they still have, they would have to deal with the government on the backside to try to get some of their money back and they won't get all of it back. And if the government finds mistakes in their underwriting, they might not get anything back. So you also, when you're going to get an SBA loan or going to get a bank loan, you know, similar to real estate, you have other more, you know, in some cases, more experienced underwriters looking at the deal for you and saying, yep, this works or nope you know, doesn't work at that price. Maybe you should ask for, you know, price reduction of 20% and then it works. And then you can go back to the sellers with that, you know, with that statement from a bank. So it is, you do have that personal guarantee on it. Cool. So I'm just thinking through like, if people that are listening, like that are new to the journey of financial freedom and those pursuits. So obviously if they go get a business and they get an SBA loan and it tanks, they're going to probably be personally liable for that debt because they're they're coming on as a guarantor. Or guarantor I'm not sure if I get the right words right, but they're, they're personally guaranteeing the loan. So as opposed to them getting 100% seller financing, where they're probably not going to be personally liable, right? If the business doesn't do as well, they just hand the business back to the seller, generally speaking, which is obviously the seller. Yeah. So walk me through that because I'm imagining like getting 100% seller financing is probably in most cases the most ideal situation possible. But it's also probably from a sales perspective comes with some unique challenges. And as a salesperson, like I love sales so much. Like the strategies, the conversations, the tonalities, like you name it. Everything about sales kind of wakes me up in the morning. It's like taking a cold shower. So that being said... Walk me through what a sales process might look like with a seller to get them to agree what sort of objections they have to seller financing and how do you get over those? Um, so the hundred percent seller financing is, you know, it's not going to be there every day. Most sellers would probably want you to pony up something and see that you're actually have skin in the game. But 
for the ones that you find that are willing to consider it or have it in thought. Um, you know, one of their, one of the biggest objections is going to be, how do I know that you're going to run the business properly? Uh, and to counter that, you're going to have to show them some kind of track record that you have, whether it's something you've done in your professional career, some kind of connections you have in your personal life. Uh, having a team of advisors or having a team of people that you can go to for answers on, you know, accounting, taxes, legal, that you show them, hey, you know, I've got, I've got all these people in my corner that are cheering for me, that are there to support me. That would be one way around that objection. Um, the other is, to, you know, building that personal connection with the seller as well, letting, getting them, letting them get to know you so that they trust you uh, to try to, you know, assuage some of their fears in that regard. Um, one of the other big objections you, you're probably hearing, not, maybe not an objection, is I want my money now. <laughs> you know, I'm, I've been doing this for 20 years. You're going to give me X amount. I, my, I just, I want it today. Uh, the objection to that is, you know, similar to real estate where if they take the money over a period of time, they can kind of defray some of their capital gains taxes on that money and not have to pay it all right up front. Um, you can also structure it, you know, depending on how much they're willing to work with you, depending on the, you could structure the, the sales price being a little bit lower and the interest rate being a little bit higher. So they're getting more interest income, depending on their personal tax situation that, you know, they're going to want to work with their, their tax advisor on the best way to structure that. So I want to dive into this a little bit more because we do this in real estate all the time. So like we bought a mobile home park and we gave the person two options like, hey, we will pay X amount or we'll pay $100,000 less X amount if it's seller financed, $100,000 less if it's cash. So on that particular deal, it worked out to be like, I think we bought it at 65 cents on the seller finance dollar, so to speak. So we had a 35% discount. When you're evaluating like, okay, I'll buy the business entirely cash versus, you know, maybe get a 30% down loan versus 100% seller finance. How do you structure the difference? Because it seems like your preferred motive uh, method is 100% seller finance or 100% finance in general. But how much of a discount do you require to start putting your own cash in? Uh, pretty substantial. I don't have an exact percentage, but I would... The more cash I'm going to have to put in, the lower the purchase price, uh, kind of on a sliding scale. If I have to go to a bank, that's typically going to lower the price a little bit more because there's a lot more hassle, you know, not hassle, but it's, you know, a lot more work involved in preparing certain statements, getting all the documents that a bank needs um, as, you know, same as real estate. They want to look under all the nooks and crannies. They want to see all of your statements and make sure that, everything is on the up and up. So it's just adds more complexity to the deal. So it lowers the purchase price because it costs more work. Okay. It takes more time. Um, and it's, it, it would be, it'd be kind of the same way that you, you reference with that mobile home park. Um, just seller financing hundred percent. Sure. Name your price. Let's we'll, I'll figure it out as long as the cash flows. And as long as I still see the upside, with the work that myself and anybody I hire can do, uh, doesn't matter. You know, I'll go as high as, as high as I possibly can, but if it's going to be, okay, I need, now I need to bring 20, 30% to the deal and go get a bank loan. It's going to change that 
that because now, now I'm looking for it's got a cash flow even more because I need to get my money back much quicker. Um, I am all about the velocity of money and trying to turn that over as quickly as possible. So the more I have to put in, the better the returns have to be, which means the lower the price is going to be. Absolutely. Um, yeah, of course not. Um, we don't live in a perfect world, right? Um, so you were talking about upside just recently. I would like to dive deeper into that. So how do you define upside? Like, obviously, every business is going to be a little bit different. But like, what are you looking for there? And like, how do you implement it as well? I'm curious there. Um, so upside can be anything that you see is missing from the business. Uh, the same way in real estate that you buy that mobile home park because you know that there are there's room for 10 extra pads to drop in and that's immediately going to going to up your revenue. Uh in a business it's going to be finding those niches like uh is if it's, you know, missing a customer segment that it doesn't it's not hitting because it's not open certain hours or is it um not marketing in the right channels? Is it does it not have social media? Does it not have a website? Uh you know, nowadays it's harder to find businesses that don't have those things, but there's, there's still plenty out there. Uh, you'd, you'd be shocked and it's hard to find them because nobody can find them because they don't have an online presence. But those are, those are a couple of things. Um, with my liquor store, one of the, the, you know, the first thing I did day one was put a point of sales system in. So now instead of, you know, uh, just as a story, when we, when I, we counted the inventory by hand the day before closing, on the store because we needed an accurate number for the purchase price. Uh, the inventory was about $50,000 less than what this sellers thought they had in the store at that time. Uh, and that's just because they did not, they kept no records of what they're caught, what, how many bottles of anything were in the store at any given time. And so not knowing how much inventory you're even sitting on is a, you know, knowing how much inventory you're sitting on, does creates upside because now you're managing your cash flow better and you're managing your business overall business better. So things like that. And then, and then, you know, adding on to that, finding the items that have higher gross margin and pushing those products a little bit more, uh, training staff on, Hey, somebody comes in for this product, show them this product because it's actually way better and we have a higher margin on it and it might even save them a dollar. So you get those, find those win-win-win scenarios and, um, you know, drive more revenue, drive better customer satisfaction, drive better gross margin. Absolutely. Um, yeah, this brings up a question for me, for sure. Um, so when I was 19, I was an assistant GM at a McDonald's. So I was raised in this corporate environment, obviously food cost, labor costs, everything was super detailed. Um, and then I went to other places, right? I went to a startup company and they had none of that. They didn't even have a theoretical inventory system. And it just blew my mind how like low structured it was. Is it really common to see businesses that don't have these systems in place or is it more towards the McDonald's corporate structure? What are you seeing more commonly? Way less towards the McDonald's structure. Uh, most, you know, I, you know, and I'll even, it, even my store is not run to the McDonald's level of, uh, of precision on, you know, what step by step, you know, I, I have put in pro put in place a number of processes and a number of procedures and, and we track a lot of metrics, but not to the level of a, of a McDonald's. So 
it's just, it's, and then it's kind of downhill from there. I mean, there, there are, there's still lots of businesses out there that track nothing, don't care about labor costs. I shouldn't say don't care, but don't really measure it or don't, don't think about it as much that, that don't track their gross margins. Um, don't, don't, uh, pay attention to their, even to their bottom line. Uh, as long as they see cash coming in every day and their bank account has a couple dollars in it, they feel like they're successful and that's good enough for them. Uh, and then when you actually start digging into their books, it's like, well, you've been losing money every year for the last five years. Why is your business worth anything? That's, but they've got a brand new Audi and they've got a, a nice huge house and they go on vacation every year because they've just been sucking that money off and they haven't really been paying attention to what the bottom line says. Yeah. So first of all, kudos, man. Like I always love when people are taking a path a little bit less traveled. Um, I mean, obviously not just from your desire to go to the Peace Corps, to travel the world. Um, I w- if we had more time, I'd love to dive in more of the stories that you got to experience. Maybe so maybe on a future conversation. One thing that we really love to ask, because we're all about freedom and building the life that you want, which so when I see people doing something a little bit different, it makes me so happy. So the question we like to ask is if you had a billion dollars in the bank and a hundred lifetimes of cash flow, like what would your life look like? How would you define your freedom? It's a good question. Uh, I would probably still be actively looking for businesses to, to purchase and to invest in. I would not be necessarily active in any of the day-to-day of uh, running any of those, but I, I just love looking at businesses, investing in them. I'd probably be lending to people that want to buy businesses uh, and uh, probably working most likely either back in Guyana or Ethiopia with teaching entrepreneurship and you know helping educate small business owners in, in other places that have less resources at their disposal. What a great answer. I love it when people know exactly what they want when this answer comes up or when the question comes up, because um, most of us still want to do something, right? It's just like just doing nothing is not super appealing at all. <laughs> so I love it. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, you went right to helping heard, people too. I've heard other people say that, you know, those, those of us that, that can actually attain early retirement are usually the people that never will yeah. retire <laughs> Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. That, that is a good point. And that, that, that actually leads me right into it. Like, what is your vision for like the next 12 months? What are you guys working on over there? Uh, definitely want to put another business on the books, uh, in the next 12 months. I'm also actively, uh, adding uh, real estate as well. Uh, we just closed on a 28 unit a few months ago. Uh, we're working on some other deals right now. Uh, it's, yeah, some more acquisitions definitely in the future. And, uh, and then, yeah, that's, that's kind of it really <laughs> the next 12 months. Gotcha. Cool. So, so you're looking to buy some more properties, anybody or not properties, rather businesses. Sorry. That must've been a reflex. Both, um, both, <laughs> both too. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if anybody in the audience wanted to reach out to you, you said that you had a link for them. Could you? Yep. We, they can go to powerofbiz.com slash chasing freedom. And uh, there, there is a download of a, a template that I use to evaluate businesses. Uh, it's a you know, plug and play. Uh, you'll get the instructions and a follow-up email of how to use it, but it's pretty straightforward. Uh, plug in some past numbers and put in a couple of assumptions and 
gives you a, a, you know, kind of a rough valuation to go off of. It's not perfect. Every business is going to be a little bit different. You're going to need to tweak as you go, but that's a good place to, to, you know, get that download. Um, I'm pretty active on Instagram at Tim T Delaney. Uh, you can find me there, follow me, uh, try to post business content and personal development, uh, financial stuff on the regular. Um, very cool. So all that information will, of course, be in the show notes so the audience could easily find it. Um, Tim Delaney, man, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for sharing this. Um, obviously, this is a new one for us, purchasing businesses like you have. And it's just been a great experience. Um, and to those of you out there chasing freedom, there's a link for you to check out. So go do so. Um, and freedom is acquired one action at a time. So if you do nothing else, commit to taking one action and do so in the next seven days. And tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. So thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 